you're listening to The Maniculum, pointing the finger at the Middle Ages. We bring you the choicest medieval nonsense, discuss and evaluate it, then pillage it for our own geeky purposes. As promised, this is the text we refer to a couple times in the most recent Tang Dynasty episode, wherein someone goes to visit Constantinople and very much does not appreciate the local culture in any way. I should note that this is a little different from a number of our other episodes because it involves a lot more reading directly from the text. This is because, if you were to summarize the text, you'd lose all the parts which make it fun. Because the fun of this text comes in the voice of the author, who, well, is not pleased with his situation and lets it be known and is extremely, let's say, catty about the place in which he finds himself and the people he has to deal with. It's kind of like an angry one-star Yelp review for all of Constantinople in general, and the Emperor in particular. So obviously we have to keep the wording and the occasional excess verbosity in order to really get across the tone of this text. Also, as a result, we're going to have to split it up a bit. We actually had to leave off recording a little more than halfway into the text just for time management reasons. Then we came back later and recorded the other half and did our usual segments and D&D talk. And I'll put that out as the next episode, just so you know what you're getting into. We are looking back to the 10th century. In the 10th century, Otto the Great had just become emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, and he wanted to negotiate with the Byzantines, or the Eastern Roman Empire, Mm -hmm. to marry the emperor's stepdaughter, and thus merge the two, like reunite East and West. Okay, makes sense. Go from having two Romes to having one Rome. Right. The reason is the stepdaughter, by the way, is because there's been a lot of coups and mysterious deaths among the Eastern Roman empires recently, and the current emperor is in fact emperor by marriage. Oh! He was a general who married the wife of the previous emperor and thus became current emperor. Okay, so some shaky ground there. Yeah. Anyway, so in trying to organize this... It occurs to Otto the Great that he has a guy in his court who is perfect for this job. His name is, well, his name is something like Luprand of Cremona. And I say something like because on the Wikipedia page, it gives many different possible spellings. Oh boy. He could be Liutprand, Liudprand, Liuprand, Leotio. Leotius, Leozo, <laughs> and Leotios. Okay, so it's basically the same name, but different dialects, like different languages are giving exactly. it different versions of it. Because there's like the Roman name, the German version, the, you know, French version or whatever. Okay, the Hungarian. There doesn't seem to be consensus because the book I have here, which is from early 20th century, spells it Liudprand, but the Wikipedia page has picked Liutprand for the header, so there's still some discussion, apparently. Fair enough. But anyway, this guy, L-Dog. Yes. <laughs> he was a member of the clergy, 
whom I believe Otto had himself elevated to bishop, so he owes Otto something. And before he became a member of Otto's court, he had already gone to Constantinople on a diplomatic mission for Berengar II, who was, I think, a king of Italy. Okay. So he's been there before as a diplomat. He is now a bishop, so he's a big deal. He's written other stuff about this. There is an account of his earlier visit to Constantinople inside of a history of the region that he wrote, which we may do a series on later because I bet it's interesting. Ooh, yeah, definitely. See, this is is at that point where I forget that Italy had kings because my brain goes... Roman Empire, Rome fell, Renaissance, and city-states. Right. And I like I totally forget that there were actual like kingdoms in Italy at a certain point between between the Renaissance and the fall of Rome, which is a very substantial period. So yes. I just Some I just never years or so. yeah, you know, I just never I'm I don't specialize in Italian literature and studies, so but no, no, yeah. So there's there's kings in Italy. Keep going. Ooh, oh I did want to um, connect that the changing of the names in legend, because is this like, is this one of those legends that sort of gets passed around and, and doesn't mesh up necessarily? Is there a lot of literature about this or is this the only record that we have? Because you said, you already said there's more records. This is, I mean, I'm going to assume that all the other spellings are from other like records from different authors. Right. But the reason that we're talking about Leoprand is that he is the author of the text we're about to read. This oh, is a first-hand okay. account. Ooh, okay, even better. And the only reason that I bring this up is that King Arthur, whoever mm-hmm. whoever he was historically, has sort of the same connotations. Is There was probably someone who was like Arturius or, you know, maybe he was a Roman. Maybe he was some like Welsh person or a Pict or whatever. And then he eventually in legend became King Arthur. And then there's Uther. And did you know that Uther's name actually like goes back to Jesus? That I did not know. I did not know that at all. But I was reading the, where was it? The History of the Kings of Britain, or as I like to call it, the HRB, the Historia, Historia Regum Britanniae. And there's, mm-hmm. there's like this footnote on it. Let me see if I can find it, because it's just so fascinating, because it's like, oh yeah, by the way, Uther's name goes back to Jesus. And I'm like, excuse me? Ha- Wait, hold on a minute? Like, King, King Arthur is the son of Jesus Pendragon? Because it has to do with the Welsh. Oh. Let me see if I can find it. Okay, so this is a footnote in the Penguin Classics version, and it says Uther Pendragon, which is Jesus Yether Pendragon, so like son of the dragon, because that's the the Ben is the mm-hmm. phrase used in Hebrew names for son of, and it says it takes his name from the comet and the two golden dragons which he had made earlier, and Joffrey calls him Uther Pendragon as one word from that appearance. So somehow it goes back to, like, Uther goes back to the Welsh translation or version of the name Jesus. So it's like the name Jesus, like there's loads of people called Jesus. Yeah, that's what I was just thinking. Yeah, you don't name your kid Jesus. So Uther is the same thing for, like, late antiquity and Welsh Welsh lore. So fun fact, because I was going through that. Anyway... Alright, so to my knowledge, there are no legends about this. The reason we know about Leuthbrand is because we still have his works. Mm-hmm. 
Spoiler alert, he does not reunite the Roman Empire. <laughs> I mean, it's been several thousand years. I think I think we're okay with that spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah, so his, his mission doesn't work out. It would be like a tiny footnote in history if it weren't for the fact that he wrote an account of it firsthand. And it's one of the most detailed accounts of like what it was actually like in Constantinople at that time. Ooh, I love it. Like an ethnography. Yes, and no. Sorry, is this like Tacitus and Germania and Agricola, where he's like, I'm going to document the life and times of these people, and then he's like, yeah, they're really weird, and they wear pants, the barbarians. Now you're giving him too much credit. Oh, okay. What this is, is a letter back to Otto about how the mission is going. (laughs) Yes! Whether or not this was ever actually sent, we don't know. Okay. But we can expect some quality brown nosing. Yes. Okay, I'm excited. These are some. This is one of my favorite historical genres to read, simply because the facetiousness of these letters gets increasingly over the top as you go through the medieval and the Renaissance periods. All right, so let's begin. <clears throat> that the Ottos, the invincible August emperors of the Romans, and the most noble Adelaide, the August empress, may always flourish, prosper, and triumph is the earnest wish, desire, and prayer of Leud Prand, Bishop of the Holy Church of Cremona. <laughs> What a salutation! What was the reason that you did not receive my previous letters or messengers? The following account will explain. On the 4th of June, we arrived at Constantinople, and after a miserable reception meant as an insult to yourselves, we were given the most miserable and disgusting quarters. (laughs) I love this already. The palace where we were confined was certainly large and open, but it neither kept out the cold nor afforded shelter from the heat. Armed soldiers were set to guard us and to prevent any people from going out and any others from coming in. This dwelling, only accessible to us who were shut inside it, was so far distant from the emperor's residence that we were quite out of breath when we walked there. We did not ride. (laughs) This is already amazing. To add to our troubles, the Greek wine we found undrinkable because of the mixture in it of pitch, resin, and plaster. I don't know why there's plaster in his wine. But apparently there is. My guess is that he's he's talking about, like, whatever basin, pitcher, whatever the wine was held in, like, chipped off and got into the wine. Uh, so that when it was poured explain. out, it had all these little particles in it. Because, like, pitch and resin, I can kind of see. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, plaster. That's my guess. The house itself had no water, and we could not even buy any to quench our thirst. Oh, and this is obviously, since I'm reading directly, this is another kind of old translation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And occasionally a Greek or Latin phrase will be given a British equivalent that doesn't quite fit. Okay, makes sense. All this was a serious, oh dear me. <laughs> Who is the translator of this? That's amazing. Let's see. F.A. Wright. Props to you, Mr. Wright. Oh, now I'm just picturing, like, this really stuffy Englishman. And all of this, of course, was an oh dear me. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. Alas. But there was another oh dear me even worse. And that was our warden, the man who provided us with our daily wants. If you were to seek another like him, you certainly would not find him on Earth. You might perhaps in hell. 
Like a raging torrent, he poured upon us every calamity, every extortion, every expense, every grief, and every misery that he could invent. In 120 days, not one passed without bringing to us groaning and lamentation. Oh, wow. One star hotel review. Yeah, he's not in prison. This is a hotel. Oh, he's my just like, gosh. The person in charge of this place is a monster. Okay, to be fair, he described it as a palace. Yes. Oh my gosh. I feel like I once saw this wonderful post about how if you struggle to write cover letters, all that you need to do is suddenly embody a high elf from any fandom that you have, whether it's like Skyrim or the Lord of the Rings or whatever, just embody the persona of a high elf who already thinks that they should basically be hired and you'll be set. And that is exactly what I feel like is going on in this text. I'm going to try and remember that because I cannot write cover letters to save my life. Yeah. Just, you know, become the high elf who thinks they're hot shit. On the 4th of June, as I said above, we arrived at Constantinople and waited with our horses in heavy rain outside the carrion gate until 5 o'clock in the afternoon. At 5 o'clock, Nikephorus... Nikephorus is the general who's just become emperor by marriage. Okay. Nikephorus ordered us to be admitted on foot, for he did not think us worthy to use the horses with which your clemency had provided us, and we were escorted to the aforesaid, hateful, waterless, drafty stone house. Oh, wow. On the 6th of June, which was the Saturday before Pentecost, I was brought before the Emperor's brother Leo, Marshal of the Court and Chancellor, and there we tired ourselves with a fierce argument over your imperial title. He called you not emperor, which is Basilius in his tongue, but insultingly Rex, which is king in ours. Which is a big deal, because imperator and Rex are two different things. Because you can be king of a whole bunch of people, but Rome, ancient Rome in particular, had a bunch of like little kings and governors all over the place who all answered to the imperator, the emperor. So just because exactly. you were king doesn't mean that you're anyone special. And from what I understand, the Holy Roman Empire worked very similarly in that there were like sub-kings and, and princes and whatnot. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think part of this is because the people of the Eastern Roman Empire who have actual continuity with the Old Roman Empire do not respect the idea that the Holy Roman Empire is also a Roman Empire. Because even though it's covering more of the same like area that the Western Empire used to have, there was a break. Right. Oh, definitely. But you don't have an opinion on such matters, I'm sure. Actually, no, I don't. <laughs> Fair enough. Some late antiquarians have very specific ideas about which Roman Empire, like where did Rome go, the east or the west, and they will they will die on that hill. And it's very, very fun to get into conversations with them and just let them go at it. Wonderful, wonderful thing to do with your professors if any of you are taking classics. Well, see... First, that sounds fun, but <laughs> the reason I don't have an opinion is because borders and states and things aren't real. True, So true. There's, there's no objective reality that you can be arguing for. So it's really just like, you could argue this or that. Yeah. You could argue that the Russian Empire was a continuation of the Romans. Oh, for sure. Or like one of my like, favorites. Link. Yeah, one of my favorites is when did Germany actually begin? Like, who are the Germans? When did that become a thing? Because Germany as a country is very, very, very late when it was finally established. But the German people have been around for ages and ages and ages. So, you know, how do you how do you split those hairs? 
But I always think it's fun to get people who do have opinions about that really riled up about them because first off, you learn a lot. And second off, it's just fun. Yes. All right. Wait, wait. Oh, yes. And, uh, so they're squabbling over whether or not Otto gets called emperor. Yes. I told him that the thing meant was the same, though the word was different. And he then said that I had come not to make peace, but to stir up strife. Finally, he got up in a rage and really wishing to insult us, received your letter, not in his own hand, but through an interpreter. Which is a big deal, too. Like, if you won't receive a letter in person, but you make you give it off to somebody else to take and mm-hmm. read, it's like, eh, I'm not I'm not really taking you seriously. There's a... Um, I think there's a couple great instances of that in Game of Thrones, but I've only seen scenes of it, and I know you you don't watch it. No, I've read the books, right. so I know, I know the I know the plot. But there's there's a couple of really good scenes about that, and, and you can see that they've done it through body language only and not speech, which is very very interesting if you know the the impact of that, the relationship of that. He is a man commanding enough in person, but feigning humility, whereon if a man lean, it will pierce his hand. Wait, say that again? He is a man commanding enough in person, but feigning humility, whereon if a man lean, it will pierce his hand. Am I brain dead? What does that mean? I'm not 100% sure either. I think he's saying that like, if you rely on some on this, you'll you're going to end up hurt. hurt. Okay, that makes more sense. That's a turn of phrase I've never heard. But we can add it to our turns of phrase. On our blog. (laughs) All right. And this next bit is one of the reasons that this is so remembered, because he's going to get into uh, Nykephorus' personal appearance. (laughs) It's always the appearances with these guys. On the 7th of June, the sacred day of Pentecost, I was brought before Nykephorus himself in the palace called Stefana, that is, the crown palace. He is a monstrosity of a man. A dwarf, fat-headed and with tiny mole's eyes, disfigured by a short, broad, thick beard half-going gray, disgraced by a neck scarcely an inch long, in color an Ethiopian, and as the poet says, you would not like to meet him in the dark. Oh my gosh! A big belly, a lean posterior, very long in the hip considering his short stature, small legs, fair-sized heels and feet. Dressed in a robe made of fine linen, but old, foul-smelling, and discolored by age. Shod with Sicyonian slippers. Bold of tongue, a fox by nature, in perjury and falsehood, a Ulysses. Oh my gosh. Wow. There's a lot that I could say about that. To quote John Mulaney, now we don't have time to unpack all of that. (laughs) But I'm most impressed that he went out of his way to say that he had a small butt, of all things. I know, that's what stood out to me, too. <laughs> like, why do you care? Why are you looking at his butt? <laughs> no! <laughs> it's like, he's got a beer belly, but a really small ass. Like, <laughs> oh no, this poor guy. I just I feel bad now. Also, in case it's not clear, he is not actually from Ethiopia. Yeah, he just, he looks as such. I mean... Or at least he's dark-skinned enough, I suppose, to be yeah, grouped which, in which that. Which may be partially because I think he actually is from, like, northern Africa. Yeah, that would make sense. Or, like, at least the Mediterranean region. But also, 
He's a general, so he spent all his time in the field, so he's probably got a serious tan. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, which, of course, is something that in the Middle Ages was considered very low class, mm -hmm. because it meant you spent time outside doing work. <laughs> we can't have that. Which is why he's, I think, exaggerating uh, how dark this person's complexion is. Definitely. By saying, like, oh, he's, he's, he's very tan. He's not pale like you, my emperor, who spends all his time indoors. Eating bonbons. Yes. Or whatever it is that you do. <laughs> you know, I, I just want to point out here that he's a bishop, and this is not a very charitable way to speak about another person. So we should take notes that this is a great example of the Catholic Church also being a very, very political organization, especially right. in the Middle Ages, and not necessarily christian in all of its endeavors in the in the strictly traditional biblical sense of treat thy neighbor as thyself i'm sorry are you suggesting that <laughs> clergy might be corrupt. selfish and uncharitable and corrupt oh never i would never do that next you'll say that the that the preachers on tv aren't actually talking to god and are just asking us to send up them money for their own benefit no i mean we all know that religions are looking for the best of every single individual. Right. Anyone who enters any Christian church is, of course, humble and Christ-like and charitable. Completely. 100%. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Man. But yes, it's very clear that uh, uh, being a bishop is, as far as Liudbrand is concerned, more of a, a political... Yes, a political office. <laughs> And yeah. a religious one. Yeah. Which actually, uh, we should point out that taking a role in the clergy would be an acceptable thing for the third, fourth son of a nobleman to do because you don't want to be working necessarily because that would lower your standing. So what was it? The, like the three classes are farmers, clergymen, and soldiers? Yeah. So, ooh, or law. So if, if you wanted to keep your standing, but you weren't going to inherit the estate, then you could go into law, you could go into the army, or you could go into the clergy. And those were your kind of three options. Otherwise, you were going to be a tradesman or an apprentice or a farmer, and you don't want that because you got to keep that blue blood. Yeah. Anyway. My lords and august emperors, you always seemed comely to me, but how much more comely now? Always magnificent. How much more magnificent now? Always mighty, how much more mighty now? Always clement, how much more clement now? Always full of virtues, how much fuller now? At his left, not on a line with him, but much lower down, sat the two child emperors, once his masters, now his subjects. These are the children of the previous emperor. Oh. They were technically made co-emperors while their father was still alive. Oh, wow. Okay. But they're too young to govern. So technically all three of these guys are emperors, but he's the only actual adult. So he is the emperor and they are just kind of hanging around. Oh, Tetrarchy, technically. Wait, no, Tetrarchy's four. Yes. So that would be a triarchy? Triumvirate? Yeah, that's a much better word that actually historically is used. Wow. Wow, Zoe. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, this was actually pretty common in both the later Western Roman Empire and the Eastern Roman Empire through their whole history. 
is that you'd make the people you wanted to inherit the emperorship co-emperors while you were still alive so that there wouldn't be any question about it. Yeah. So a lot of emperors' children grew up as co-emperors, ditto emperors' siblings. Yeah. A tetrarchy did occur. It does come from the quote-unquote initial tetrarchy that occurred before the East and West split. Yes. And that's, that's basically how it split. Right. I always forget that guy's name. Diocletian, I think, was the one who did that. I think so. That sounds right. He began his speech, that is Nicephorus, as follows. It was our duty and our desire to give you a courteous and magnificent reception. That, however, has been rendered impossible by the impiety of your master, who in the guise of a hostile invader has laid claim to Rome, has robbed Berengar and Adalbert of their kingdom contrary to law and right. Uh, those are two, like, petty kings of the area that are being absorbed into the Holy Roman Empire. That makes sense. And can we say at this point that your man had no actual intention of giving them a good welcome and this is just, this is all political posturing? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And also, it's a little weird that there's no pushback from Liudpran because Berengar was the person he was previously working for the last time he was in Constantinople. Oof. Okay. So some personal shade there. Has slain some of the Romans by the sword, some by hanging, while others he has either blinded or sent into exile. And furthermore, has tried to subdue to himself by massacre and conflagration cities belonging to our empire. His wicked attempts have proved unsuccessful, and so he has sent you, the instigator and furtherer of this villainy, other pretense of peace to act and since this is a very fancy translator, here it's being translated into French. Ooh, okay. To act comme un espion, that is, <laughs> as a spy upon us. <laughs> I always get a kick out of your French. Oh, amazing. To him I made this reply. My master did not invade the city of Rome by force nor as a tyrant. He freed her from a tyrant's yoke, or rather from the yoke of many tyrants. Was she not ruled by effeminate debauchers, and what is even worse and more shameful, by harlots? Oh wow, alright. <laughs> your, your power, methinks, was fast asleep then, and the power of your predecessors, who in name alone are called emperor of the Romans, while the reality is far different. If they were powerful, if they were emperors of the Romans, why did they allow Rome to be in the hands of harlots? Were not some of the holy popes banished, others so distressed that they could not procure their daily supplies, nor money wherewith to give alms? Did not Adalbert send insulting letters to your predecessors, the emperors Romanos and Constantine? Did he not rob and plunder the churches of the holy apostles? Who of you emperors, led by zeal for God, troubled to punish so heinous a crime, and bring back the holy church to its proper state. You neglected it. My master did not. From the ends of the world he rose, and came to Rome, and drove out the ungodly, and gave back to the vicars of the holy apostles all their power and honor. Those who afterwards rose against him and the Lord Pope, as being violators of their oath, sacrilegious robbers and torturers of their lords the popes, in accordance with the decrees of such Roman emperors as Justinian, Valentinian, Theodosius, etc., he slew, beheaded, hanged, or exiled. If he had not done so, 
he himself would be an impious, unjust, and cruel tyrant. It is a known fact that Berengar and Adalbert became his vassals and received the kingdom of Italy with a golden scepter from his hand. They promised fealty under oath in the presence of your servants, men still alive and now dwelling in this city. At the devil's prompting, they perfidiously broke their word, and therefore he justly took their kingdom from them, as being deserters and rebels. You yourself would have done the same to men who had sworn fealty and then revolted against you. But, said he, this is Nekephros again. Oh, okay. There is one of Adelbert's vassals here, and he does not acknowledge the truth of any of this. I love this. This is just, he said, she said. Except it's yes. two guys doing it. He said, he said. If he denies it, I replied, one of my men at your command will prove to him tomorrow in single combat that it is so. <laughs> yes! I am here for this. <laughs> Let's do it. I, you know, I've always heard about this in stories, like, you know, the romances of people saying like, yeah, let's take this outside, but I've never seen it in this context. I expect it from the Vikings, but I don't expect it from a foreign dignitary or a bishop. Right. Unfortunately, it does not end up happening, oh. but I love that he put forth the idea. Amazing. Well, said Nikephorus. He may, as you declare, have acted justly in this. Explain now why he attacked the borders of our empire with war and conflagration. We were friends and were thinking by marriage to enter into a partnership that would never be broken. The land, I answered, which you say belongs to your empire, is proved by race and language to be part of the kingdom of Italy. The Lombards held it in their power, and Louis, emperor of the Lombards, or Franks, freed it from the grip of the Saracens with great slaughter. I'm going to see if I can... No, this is important context. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, some yeah. sometimes you have to get through the more or less boring name listing of things in order to get the whole context of a piece. Yeah. For seven years also, Landulf, Prince of Benvenuto and Capua, Capua? Probably. Held it under his control. Nor would it even now have passed from the yoke of slavery to him and his descendants had not your Emperor Romanos bought at a great price the friendship of our King Hugh. It was for this reason also that he made a match between King Hugh's bastard daughter and his own nephew and namesake. I see now that you think it shows weakness in my master, not generosity, when after winning Italy and Rome, he for so many years left them to you. The friendly partnership which you say you wish to form by a marriage, we hold to be a fraud and a snare. You ask for a truce, but you have no real reason to want it, nor we to grant it. Come, let us clear away all trickeries and speak the plain truth. My master has sent me to you to see if you will give the daughter of the Emperor Romanos and the Empress Theophano. The Empress Theophano is still around and married to Nikephorus now, and she will continue to be around, I think, even after Nikephorus dies. Oh, okay. That's always impressive when, when one of these empresses outlasts their husband. Yeah, it, it happens a few times. Mm -hmm. They, But the problem is the, the Romans are so misogynistic that they won't let them rule in their own right. True. The Byzantines did. A couple times. Yeah. But it, it was a real struggle to, to make it happen. Yeah, like, wasn't it Empress... Uh, well, one of my namesakes, Empress Zoe, who, like, her son technically had the power, but she was queen regent, and she just sort of stayed queen regent. Yeah, Zoe Colise. Yeah. She was one of the ones who managed to do it successfully. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of other empresses who attempted to do the same thing, and, and it didn't work out. Nope. So you, had to be, you had to be someone seriously impressive to get past the misogyny of the place and time. Yeah. Yep. Oh. 
here. A note that past Mac forgot to mention, there were rumors at the time and historical theories for quite some time afterwards that Theophano or Theophano or however you say it didn't keep outliving her husbands by accident. She was accused both of being involved in the conspiracy to assassinate Nicephorus and before that of poisoning her previous husband, the Emperor Romanos, and possibly killing her father-in-law before that. It also seems that her original plan, once Nicephorus had been killed, was to marry Nicephorus's nephew, John Zimisces, the guy who killed him and became emperor next. But all these rumors about her killing her husbands had made that politically non-viable, so she ended up being exiled instead and stayed there until her sons became emperors in their own right, and they brought her back. As far as I know, there isn't any concrete evidence that she actually poisoned either Romanos or Romanos's father. And I'm not sure how solid the evidence is that she was involved in killing Nicephorus. It's just kind of suspicions about certain doors being conveniently unlocked at the right time. Uh, give the daughter of the Emperor Romanos and the Empress Theophano to his son, my master, the August Emperor Otto. If you give me your oath that the marriage shall take place, I am to affirm to you under oath that my master in grateful return will observe to do this and this for you. Moreover, he has already given you, his brother ruler, the best pledge of friendship by handing over Apulia, which was subject to his rule. I, to whose suggestion you declare this mischief was due, intervened in this matter, and there are as many witnesses to this as there are people in Apulia. So basically all of Apulia is, is witness, yeah. witness to this by it being what it is. Pretty much. It is past seven o'clock, said Nicephorus, and there is a church procession which I must attend. Let us keep to the business before us. We will give you a reply at some convenient season. <laughs> some convenient season. Next fall. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I think that I shall have as much pleasure in describing this procession as my masters will have in reading of it. A numerous company of tradesmen and low-born persons collected on this solemn occasion to welcome and honor Nicephorus lined the sides of the road like walls from the palace to St. Sophia, or the Hagia Sophia as we now call it. Yes. Tricked out with thin little shields and cheap spears. <laughs> wait, wait, hang on, sorry, does it say tricked out? It does. <laughs> That's such like a 1980s term. <laughs> Which Apparently it was also a 1920s <laughs> term, because that's when this was translated. Oh, no. Now I want to see, like, the Peaky Blinders just saying something's tripped out in this show. Oh, amazing. Sorry, I just had to see whether that was actually in there. As an additional scandal, most of the mob assembled in his honor had marched there with bare feet, thinking, I suppose, that thus they would better adorn the sacred procession. His nobles, for their part, who with their master passed through the plebeian and barefoot multitude, were dressed in tunics that were too large for them, and were also, because of their extreme age, full of holes. They would have looked better if they had worn their ordinary clothes. There was not a man among them whose grandfather had owned his tunic when it was new. <laughs> Aw, come on, guys. 
I'm sure this is exaggeration. Oh, of course. It there's, must there's be. There's no way that, like, all of these tunics are decades old and falling apart. Like, well, th- these guys do have money. Yes, to be fair, but remember, we're speaking about a bishop. That's true. So, whose outfits I'm sure are much more magnificent than anything <laughs> these poor, low-born people are wearing. That's probably true. I'm sure he's got extremely <laughs> nice clothing. No one except Nikephorus wore any jewels or golden ornaments, and the emperor looked more disgusting than ever in the regalia that had been designed to suit the persons of his ancestors. Okay, well, what what if the emperor finds this little diary? That's what I want to know. Like, we, we have there are so many accounts of foreign dignitaries going to different places and writing basically all this shade. And I just I always wonder, like, what if you actually did that? What if the ruler finds it, or one of the guards finds it? Like, you're you're gonna get your head cut off. Like, yeah. killing the messenger is going to happen. Especially if you're trashing the emperor. I have no idea. Because I would be terrified to do that. If I were like a foreign dignitary, like today, I wouldn't do that. But, you know, I guess if you're a bishop, you're untouchable, so... Maybe the assumption is if they start like searching him and his possessions, everything's already gone horribly wrong. I suppose so. But still, I would be terrified. (laughs) Anyway... So, the emperor looks disgusting. Yes. By your life, sires. He keeps saying sires because um, this is kind of both addressed to uh, Emperor Otto and his son, also Otto. Okay. Uh, the son Otto is the one who's who is trying to get married. By your life, sires, dearer to me than my own, one of your noble's costly robes is worth a hundred or more of these. I was taken to the procession and given a place on the platform near the singers. As Nikephorus, like some crawling monster, walked along. (laughs) Oh no. Oh no. The singers began to cry out in adulation. Behold, the morning star approaches, the day star rises, in his eyes the sun's rays are reflected, Nikephorus our prince, the pale death of the Saracens. Oh wow. Okay. That would be kind of spooky. Although I think he, I think that's actually just his nickname. The Pale Death of the Saracens. Like I think the whole like chanting thing would be spooky to to watch. Yeah, uh, according to Wikipedia, at least this mm-hmm. is a sobriquet that is associated with him. Wow, that's impressive. He was a very successful general, and he was mostly fighting against you know the Caliphate. Yeah, fair enough. Which also calls into question uh, Liud Pran's uh, shade-throwing about how tan he is. Because apparently he's not that tan if he's the Pale Death. True. I thought that was his, like, helper and not the king. Oh, no. That's that. That's Nikephorus. Nikephorus Wait, I'm is sorry. The... He's described as a dwarf? Yes. With no ass. <laughs> yes. This is the emperor. This is the... Oh, I thought this was, like, his assistant. Oh, my gosh. Y'all, Why? oh my gosh i mean okay to be fair to be fair this is like modern twitter but for the politicians of that day yes it's just these raunchy letters and i'm sure there's multiple people who have been like donald trump has no ass like i'm i'm sure it exists on twitter 
Yes, but of course, in modern times, you can't get executed for that. True. <laughs> True. We have not regressed that far. Oh, boy. Okay. Anyway, sorry. Oh, also, geez. you know, to, just just to be clear, Nicephorus was a very successful general, but not a very successful emperor. So he's not, depending on what where this is in his reign, he may be just as unpopular with other people in Constantinople as he is with Liudbrand. Fair enough. Because he, he, he always had this fixation on the military because that's where he came from. And so he ended up taxing everyone heavily to increase the military budget and it just became a disaster. Ah, history repeats itself. Yeah. Another spoiler alert that shows history being somewhat better. As a retaliation for putting everything into the military budget instead of the betterment of their citizens, Nicephorus' reign ends when he was killed in his sleep. That also checks out. Kind of. All right. Yeah. The account of it that I've heard, he actually wakes up in the process because it's not a gentle killing in his sleep. Ooh. Ooh. How? Wait. What kind of a killing in his sleep was it? Uh, a sword in the face. I mean, fair enough. I feel like if you just like if you just slit somebody's throat, that's a pretty silent way to do it, and they won't wake up. The killing was orchestrated by his nephew, who was just kind of sitting there in the room at the time. So I think he wanted <laughs> he wanted to be able to make his like little gloating speech uh, while <gasps> that was still there and bleeding out. He wanted a monologue. Yeah, that's the greatest thing I've ever heard. Oh, monologuing is historically accurate. I love it. I love it so much. Again, to give a little bit of context, he went from, like, the general that everyone loved so much that he was basically made emperor by popular acclaim to, we hate this guy and we are totally okay with him getting stabbed in the face while he sleeps in six years. Wow. That's impressive. Yeah, so some of some of Liudbrand's dislike of this guy might just come from the people he's talking to in town, who probably don't Fair like enough. him much either. Well, I mean, he, he's bound to have a reputation, you know, whether for good or ill. And it does it does show that politics and military ability are two very different realms. Oh, yeah. Just because you're a good general does not make you a good, you know, governor. Right. No, it's if you look at historical rulers, you can see that, like, sometimes people who are good in the military are bad rulers. Sometimes they're good rulers. There's no correlation at all. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> anyway. And then they cried again, Long life, long life to our prince Nicephorus. Adore him, ye nations, worship him, bow the neck to his greatness. How much more truly they might have sung, Come, you miserable burnt-out coal, old woman in your walk, wood devil in your look, clodhopper, haunter of byres, goat-footed, horned, double-limbed, bristly, wild, rough, barbarian, harsh, hairy, a rebel, a Cappadocian. A Cappadocian. <laughs> Wow. Okay. So, puffed up by these lying ditties, he entered the Hagia Sophia. His masters, the emperors, following at a distance and doing him homage on the ground with the kiss of peace. And this is also shade because he's starting to refer to the child emperors as Nicephorus's masters. Oh, jeez, come on. Wow. Because they're legitimate emperors, you see. That's true. Even technically, technically they are. His armor-bearer, with an arrow for pen, recorded in the church the era in progress since the beginning of his reign, so those who did not see the ceremony know what era it is. On the same day, he ordered me to be his guest, but as he did not think me worthy to be placed above any of his nobles, I sat fifteenth from him and without a tablecloth. <laughs> without a tablecloth. 
Oh, wow. Amazing. And again, that is also a sign that he is technically not being esteemed. Because no. uh, the, the further away you sit from whoever is the head honcho, the less important you are. No, he's getting no respect. And that yep. is because, among other things, Nykefris is very bad at diplomacy. <laughs> True, as we can see. This whole thing was doomed to begin with. I'm trying to remember his episode in Totalis Rankium. I think he started a war with Bulgaria, or rather with the Bulgars, mm. entirely because a previous emperor had made a deal with him that they would basically pay the Bulgars an annual, like, I guess, stipend to be a, an, an allied buffer state between them and other hostile nations. And they showed up and were like, hey, we haven't gotten our money this year. And he's like, you dare ask for money from the emperor? Yeah. You made a deal. Hold on. Oh. Yeah, exactly. That happened quite a bit. That happened quite a bit. Yeah, that actually does. And it's bad. Mm-hmm. Because wasn't... That was in part part of the whole problem with the Anglo-Saxons and Hengist and Horsa. Because one, like... I'm going to get the groups wrong. I'm going to get the groups wrong. Oh, no. But one group, like the, the people who were living there at the time were like, oh, we don't like these Viking invaders. We want you guys to come and help us. And so then they came and helped and then they just took over. Yes. You did get the group slightly wrong. I did. Correct me. Correct me. The Romanized Celts were being invaded from the north. Yes, but not by the Vikings, but by the Picts. Yes, that's right. That's right. In the Historia Regum Britanniae, you basically have this section where there's a white dragon and a red dragon and they fight and it's basically symbology over, you know, how it turns out. And then later it's basically repeated again the same way with a later conquest. And so I, I get those two groups confused. But anyway, keep going. Apparently it was much more complicated to hire mercenaries back in the day because no one actually wanted to draw up contracts and keep their agreements. So there were... Oh, this kind of stuff always went wrong. True. Yeah, mer mercenaries are great until you stop paying them or until they feel like they can get a better deal by just taking over your stuff. Right. Except in this case, it's not that because he stopped paying the Bulgars they attacked. It's because because the Bulgars dared ask him for the money, he attacked them. That's And then probably, no. and now we are getting into Vikings, probably paid off the Kievan Rus to also attack them. <laughs> oh, boy. My former friend is my enemy, so I'll hire my former enemy to be my friend. Yeah, exactly. The Rus were, like, one of the reasons they they were paying the Bulgars in the first place was, like, we need to keep you from being conquered by these guys because we, we don't want to share a border with them. This always makes me wonder whether I could be a ruler at that point in time, because that just seems like a really stupid, easy mistake to make. Yeah. But then again, once you put yourself in those shoes, then you're probably going to make those same mistakes. I mean, it it is not a meritocracy. And Nikephorus is, again, there's a reason his reign was only six years long. He was <laughs> <True>. a disaster. <laughs> he's, he's only good at war. He's terrible at diplomacy and he's terrible at administration. Yep. Which is why he's seating Leudbrand 15th from him without a tablecloth. <laughs> to <laughs> hey, get back hey, to what's going it's on. It's the little things and the big things that count. Yes, exactly. Invading Bulgaria, not giving Leudbrand a tablecloth. They're both equally important. 
Not only did no one of my suite sit at table with me, they did not even set eyes upon the house where I was entertained. He doesn't get to bring his entourage either. Right. At the dinner, which was fairly foul and disgusting, washed down with oil after the fashion of drunkards, and moistened also with an exceedingly bad fish liquor. Oh. Yeah, oh, that, that does, does actually sound really bad. bad. <laughs> a fish liquor? That's what it says. Is that a thing? You're Googling it now, aren't you? Yeah, I am. I want to know. I don't think this is liquor in the way we'd think, because distilled spirits are still a very recent invention at this time. I have removed a significant amount of rambling and various pauses to Google, during which we learn nothing in particular, because we can't find anything that explains fish liquor. So is this like, are they doing like wheatgrass shots, except it's like fish oil? I think it might just be like a fish-flavored sauce that he's calling a fish liquor. Oh, like garum. It was like the Roman condiment that they would put on everything, and it was basically made out of fish, so it was like an early version of of Worcestershire sauce. I didn't know Worcestershire sauce was made out of fish. I think it is. I think it's got sardines in it. I've also never had Worcestershire sauce, so. Yeah, anchovies. (laughs) I actually don't mind. I'm never going to have Worcestershire sauce. I actually don't mind Worcestershire sauce. Oh, I mix it with ketchup, and it's basically the same thing as brown sauce, and I didn't realize that... Okay, hang on. I have to frame this. So there's there's a very common thing here in the UK and Ireland that is called brown sauce. I've heard of it. That's what it's called. And I was like, what the, what the heck is brown sauce? When I first came over here, I was like, this is really strange. And I tried it, and I was like, oh... Oh, this is the same thing that my grandfather made. And my grandfather was in the military. And so like, this is where that came from is like when the allies went over during World War II, they brought back brown sauce with them, but they didn't have brown sauce in the States. So they mixed Worcestershire sauce with ketchup. And it's basically the same thing. So I grew up having that like with steak and French fries and stuff like that. But anyway, garum, garum was an ancient Roman condiment that was basically like a really early, more pungent version of Worcestershire sauce. So I'm guessing that whatever this fish liquor was, it was a version of Worcestershire slash garum. That would make sense. <laughs> that's, that's it also does sound terrible, so I'm with him on this. Yeah. <laughs> Even before I went vegetarian, I did not like seafood. Really? Oh, I mean, it's, it's fair awful. enough. I, I used to have to leave the room when there was a, when people were serving crab because I couldn't stand the smell. Okay, that's fair. I can't do oysters. Those, they freak me out. It was a handicap since I grew up in Maryland. Oh, no. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Ooh. But yeah, Ugh. fish liquor. Don't want any. Nope. Yeah. No, I'll, I'll skip that one. Anyway, at this terrible dinner, the emperor asked me many questions concerning your power, your dominions, and your army. My answers were sober and truthful, but he shouted out, You lie! Your master's soldiers cannot ride, and they do not know how to fight on foot. The size of their shields, the weight of their cuirasses, the length of their swords, and the heaviness of their helmets that does not allow them to fight either way. Okay. Then with a smile, he added, Their gluttony also prevents them. Their Mm. god is their belly, their courage but wind, their bravery, drunkenness. Fasting for them means dissolution, sobriety, panic. Nor has your master any force of ships on the sea, 
I alone have really stout sailors, and I will attack him with my fleets, destroy his maritime cities, and reduce to ashes those which have a river near them. Tell me, how with his small forces will he be able to resist me even on land? His son was there, his wife was there, the Saxons, Swabians, Bavarians, and Italians were all there with him, and yet they had not the skill nor the strength to take one little city that resisted them. How then will they resist me when I come followed by as many forces as there are, and this is apparently a quote, cornfields oh. on Gargarus, grapes on lesbian vine, waves in the ocean, stars in heaven that shine. Wow. To be fair, that's a hell of a quote. Yes. Also, lesbian vine needs to be a band name. Yes, it does. <laughs> Let's I know quickly it's re- remind the listeners that there is an island in Greece called Lesbos, and that yep. is what we're talking about. Yes, yes, which is where lesbian came from, eventually. Right, because it's where, it's where the poet Sappho was from. Yes. Also, I'm assuming that it didn't rhyme uh, in English until it had some, like, messing around by the translator. Fair enough. Poetic license. We'll still give it to him. Yes. We should respect our translators. We like our translators. I'm enjoying this one. I wanted to answer and make such a speech in our defense as his boasting deserved, but he would not let me, and added this final insult, you are not Romans, but Lombards. Ooh. All right. Okay. (laughs) He even then was anxious to say more, and waved his hands to secure my silence, but I was worked up, and cried, history tells us that Romulus from whom the Romans get their name was a fratricide born in adultery. He made a place of refuge for himself and received into it insolvent debtors, runaway slaves, murderers, and men who deserved death for their crimes. This was the sort of crowd whom he enrolled as citizens and gave them the name of Romans. From this nobility are descended those men whom you style rulers of the world. But we Lombards, Saxons, Franks, Lotharingians, Bavarians, Swabians, and Burgundians so despise these fellows that when we are angry with an enemy, we can find nothing more insulting to say than you Roman. For (laughs) us, in the word Roman, is comprehended every form of lowness, timidity, avarice, luxury, falsehood, and vice. You say that we are unwarlike and know nothing of horsemanship. Well, if the sins of the Christians merit that you keep this stiff neck, the next war will prove what manner of men you are and how warlike we are. That's a pretty solid speech, to be fair. Yes, which may have been written after the fact. Oh, I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. Nicephorus, exasperated by these words, commanded the long, narrow table to be removed. And then, calling for silence with his hand, ordered me to return to my hateful abode, or to speak more truly, to my prison. (laughs) Go to your room! Again, he's in it like an Airbnb. That's amazing. Amazing. He's He's like a really salty teenager. It's like, mom grounded me, and I'm stuck in my prison. (sighs) You see now why I said I couldn't summarize this, because the wording is what really makes it good. Oh, it's amazing. There, two days later, as a result of my indignation as well as of heat and thirst, I fell seriously ill. Indeed, there was not one of my companions who, having drunk from the same cup with me, did not fear that his last day was approaching. Why, I asked, should they not sicken, 
Their drink instead of good wine was brackish water. Their bed was not hay, straw, or even earth, but hard marble. Their pillow was a stone. Their drafty house kept out neither rain, nor heat, nor cold. Salvation herself, to use a common expression, if she had poured all her favors on them, could not have saved them. Weakened, therefore, by my own tribulations and those of my companions, I called in our warden, or rather my persecutor. (laughs) I just, I love the embellishment here. (laughs) Keep going. And by prayers and bribes induced him to take the following letter to the emperor's brother, Bishop Leopran to Leo, chancellor and marshal of the palace. If his serene highness intends to grant the request for which I came, then the sufferings I am now enduring shall not exhaust my patience. My master, however, must be informed by letter and messenger that my stay here is not useless. On the other hand, if a refusal is contemplated, there is a Venetian merchantman in harbor here just about to start. Let him permit me as a sick man to go on board, so that, if the time of my dissolution be at hand, my native land may at last receive my corpse." To summarize that one, he's basically like, look, if you're going to say yes, fine. But if you're going to say no, let us leave, because I hate this place. That's amazing. Leo read my letter and gave me an audience four days later. In accordance with their rule, their wisest men, strongest in attic eloquence, sat with him to discuss your request. Namely, Basil the chief chamberlain, the chief secretary, the chief master of the wardrobe, and two other dignitaries. They began their discourse as follows. Tell us, brother, the reason that induced you to take the trouble to come here. When I told them that it was on account of the marriage, which was to be the ground for a lasting peace, they said, It is unheard of that a daughter born in the purple of an emperor born in the purple. So both of them were born... In the dynasty. Yeah. Which was, given the number of like coups and stuff, that was not like assumed. So the fact that she's multi-generational, born in the purple, is a big deal. Right. Should contract a foreign marriage. Still, great as is your demand, you shall have what you want if you give what is proper. Ravenna, namely, and Rome, with all the adjoining territories, from thence to our possessions. If you desire friendship without the marriage, let your master permit Rome to be free, and hand over to their former lord the princes of Capua and Benevento, who were formerly slaves of our holy empire and are now rebels. Oh, wow. Yeah, so basically, in order to secure this marriage, you have princes that we want extradited to us, we want the land, and we would like you to give up claim over Italy. Yeah, that's a lot for a political marriage. It is a lot. Which means they're basically saying no. Right. Yes, but actually no. Although... To be fair, this daughter, whose name I'm blanking on, but let me try and find her, was apparently extremely well thought of. Mm -hmm. Let me see if I can get the name. Because I I do remember that she comes up a couple times, like in history. Her name was Anna. Oh, all right. If you want to look her up, she is usually referred to as Anna Porphyrogenita, which means born in the purple. Mm-hmm. That would make sense. That's a great phrase, porphyrogenita. Ah, and here's what I was thinking of. Anna's hand was considered such a prize that some theorize that Vladimir, that's Vladimir the Great of Kiev, became Christian just to marry her. That is impressive. 
Alrighty. Yeah, so that's pretty cool. Yeah. Future Mac here. Something I forgot to mention, but that is probably of interest to anyone like me who enjoys the Icelandic sagas. One of the other things that Vladimir did in order to gain the hand of Anna Porphyrogenita was to give Emperor Basil II, Anna's brother, a force of his own warriors. And this is often seen as the founding of the Varangian Guard, an organization that comes up in the sagas now and then because it was considered an honorable thing to go and spend some time serving in the Emperor's Guard down in Constantinople. And that's these guys. That whole tradition exists because Vladimir really wanted to marry Anna. So again, that shows you just how big a deal asking for this particular princess's hand in marriage is. Oh, spoiler. It doesn't. Obviously, she doesn't get married to Otto. She gets married to Vladimir the Great instead. Yeah, it would make sense. But then, yeah, we saw this one coming. Yeah. To this I answered. Even you cannot but know that my master rules over Slavonian princes, who are far more powerful than Peter, king of the Bulgarians, who has married the daughter of the Emperor Christopher. Hang on. Other daughters of emperors are married to people who aren't such a big deal, so why? Ah, said they. But Christopher was not born in the purple. Okay. The dynasty's a big deal. Mm Mm-hmm. As for Rome, I went on, for whose freedom you are so noisily eager. Who is her master? To whom does she pay tribute? Was she not formerly enslaved to harlots? And while you were sleeping, nay, powerless, did not my master, the august emperor, free her from that foul servitude? Constantine, the august emperor who founded this city and called it after his name, as being ruler of the world, made many offerings to the Holy Roman Apostolic Church not only in Italy, but in almost all the Western kingdoms, as well as those in the East and South, in Greece, Judea, Persia, Mesopotamia, Babylonian, Egypt, Libya, as his own special regulations testify, preserved in our country. In Italy, in Saxony, in Bavaria, and in all my master's realms, everything that belongs to the Church of the Blessed Apostles has been handed over to those holy apostles' vicar. And if my master has kept back a single city, farm, vassal, or slave, then I have denied God. Why does not your emperor do the same? Why does he not restore to the apostolic church what lies in his kingdoms, and thereby himself increase the richness and freedom which it already owes to my master's exertions and generosity? So basically, he's trying to say, you should use your wealth to increase the power of the church, like my master so virtuously has. (laughs) I mean, look at where I am. Amazing. And this is problematic because... I don't think the Eastern Orthodox Church has formally split from the Catholic Church yet, but they're oh, not friends. Right, yeah. Okay. Our church is better than your church. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he will do so, said the Chief Chamberlain Basil, when Rome and the Roman Church shall be so ordered as he wishes. Then said I, a certain man having suffered much injury from another approached God with these words, Lord, avenge me upon my adversary. To whom the Lord said, I will do so on the day when I shall render to each man according to his works. How late that day will be, the man replied. I don't know what that story is supposed to illustrate at all. Yeah, I'm trying to figure it out. No. No. It's just in there. All right. At that, everyone except the emperor's brother burst into laughter. Apparently it was real funny, whatever it was. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Then they broke off the discussion and ordered me to be taken back to my detestable dwelling place. 
and to be carefully guarded until the Day of the Holy Apostles, a feast which all religious persons duly observe. At the ceremony, the emperor commanded me, though I was very ill at the time, together with the Bulgarian envoys who had arrived the day before, to meet him at the Church of the Holy Apostles. After some verbose chants had been sung and the mass celebrated, we were invited to table, where I found placed above me on my side of the long, narrow board the Bulgarian envoy. Oh no, how dare he? He was a fellow with his hair cut in Hungarian fashion, girt <laughs> about with a brazen chain, and, as I fancy, just admitted into the Christian faith. Uh, bro, that, that, like, you're sitting next to him at the table. This is your chance to, like, increase his knowledge of the gospel. That's literally your job as bishop. But no, you're gonna insult him instead? Yeah, like, oh, look at this filthy pagan. That's, I have so many issues with the medieval Catholic Church. <laughs> <sighs> okay, all right. The preference given to him over me was plainly meant as an insult to you, my august masters. On your account, I was despised, rejected, and scorned. I thank the Lord Jesus Christ, whom you serve with all your heart, that I have been considered worthy to suffer insults for your sake. However, my masters, I consider that the insult was done to you, not to me, and I therefore left the table. I was just going indignantly away when Leo, the emperor's brother, Marshal of the court, and Simon, the chief secretary, came after me, howling. And I want you to try and picture this entire speech being, like, howled by someone running <laughs> after him. Oh, I'm so excited for this. When Peter, king of the Bulgarians, married Christopher's daughter, a mutual agreement <laughs> was sworn to on both sides to the effect that envoys of the Bulgarians should with us be preferred, honored, and esteemed above the envoys of all other nations. What you say is true. The Bulgarian envoy over there has his hair cut short. He has not washed himself, and his girdle consists of a brass chain. But nevertheless, he is a patrician, and we are definitely of opinion that it would be wrong to give a bishop, especially a Frankish bishop, the preference over him. We have noticed your show of indignation, and we are not going to allow you to return to your lodgings as you suppose. We shall force you to take food with the emperor's servants in an inn. <laughs> Oh, wow. That's a that's a lot to, to yell or to howl. Yes. My mental anguish was so unparalleled that I could not answer them back, but did what they ordered, judging that table no fit place for me, seeing that there a Bulgarian envoy was preferred. I will not say to myself personally, that is to Bishop Lupran, but to your representative. Amazing. But my indignation was appeased by a handsome present. The sacred emperor sent me one of his most delicate dishes. A fat goat, of which he himself had partaken, richly stuffed with garlic, onion, and leeks, and swimming in fish sauce. Okay, does he like the fish, or does he not like the fish? Is he being treated well? Is he being treated badly? I can't tell anymore. I know, right? Oh, he's just a drama queen. Whenever I see these, it's just like, drama queen. I wish, sires, that you could have had it on your table. The sight of it, I am sure, would have banished any incredulity you have felt concerning the sacred emperor's luxurious ways. <laughs> Drama! When eight days had passed, and the Bulgarians had left the city, Nicephorus, thinking that I esteemed his table highly, compelled me, in spite of my ill health, to dine with him again in the same place. The patriarch, with several other bishops, was present, and before them he propounded to me many questions concerning the holy scriptures, which, under the inspiration of the sacred spirit, I elegantly answered. Finally, wishing to make merry over you, he asked what synods we recognized. 
Those of Nicaea, Chalcedon, Ephesus, Carthage, Antioch, and Kira, and Constantinople, I replied. Ha-ha, said he. You have forgotten to mention Saxony, if you ask me. <laughs> the reason why our books do not mention it either is because the Christian faith there is too young to have been able to reach us. I answered, On that member of the body where the malady has its seat, a cautery must be used. Cauterization to yes. basically heat up a blade or something and to burn a wound closed, essentially. Yeah, exactly. That's what he's talking about. So he's basically saying, like, forget those guys. We're going to burn them out of existence. They don't count. It would probably be better if that is what he was going to say. Oh, no. All the heresies have emanated from you and among you have flourished. By our Western peoples, they have either been strangled or killed. Synods have often been held at Rome and Pavia, but I do not count them here. It was a Roman cleric, he whom you call Dialogus, who afterwards became the universal Pope Gregory, that freed the heretic Eutychius, patriarch of Constantinople, from his error. Eutychius said, and not only said, but in his teachings, sermons, and writings proclaimed, that at the resurrection we should put on not the real flesh that we have here, but a certain fantastic substance of his own imagination. The book that set forth this heresy was burned in the interests of orthodoxy by Gregory. Moreover, Enodius, Bishop of Pavia, was sent here, that is, to Constantinople, by the Patriarch of Rome, to deal with a certain other heresy, which he repressed and restored the Orthodox Catholic doctrine. As for the Saxon people, since they received the holy baptism and the knowledge of God, they have not been stained by any heresy which rendered a synod necessary for its correction. Of heresies, we have had none. You declare that our Saxon faith is young, and I agree. Faith in Christ is always young and not old, among people whose faith is seconded by works. Here faith is old, not young. Works do not accompany it, and by reason of its age it is held in light esteem, like a worn-out garment. I know for certain of one synod held in Saxony where it was enacted and decreed that it was more seemly to fight with the sword than with the pen, and better to face death than to fly before a foe. Your own army is finding that out now. Wow. Yes. No, like this, this is amazing in terms of, of theological discourse, because he's talking about how, like, yes, there's new faith here, but it's actually a living sort of faith, whereas you guys are falling into heresy, you're not producing good works, you're being lax in your faith. And of course, like this, again, is mostly political, but the fact that they have a framework from which to argue these theological and political points at the same time through this analogy is very interesting. And I feel like it kind of rings true, you know, how converts are very zealous. Yeah. You know, people who grew up in the church are often kind of chill. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And you get very used to, I mean, as someone who grew up in the church, you people tend to get used to certain ways of saying stuff. You get used to, to going to church on Sunday, and then you kind of forget about it for the rest of the week. And it's like, no, 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 guys, like, that's, that's not what this is. That's not what your faith is supposed to look like. So th this is a very interesting reminder that, I mean, frankly, a lot of modern day churches could use. But it's interesting to see that in a 10th century context and in a modern context. Yes. Very cool. And after he gave this speech, in my own mind, I said, may it soon find out by experience how warlike our men are. Okay, less Christian notion there, but all right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. He ordered me that same afternoon to attend him on his return to the palace, although I was so weak and changed, the women who before when they met me used to call out in admiration Holy Mother, now, pitying my misery, beat their breasts with their hands and cried, Oh, the poor sick man. <laughs> what 
drama this guy is saying. Wow. He's like, I used to be so glorious when I went down the street. Oh, but now I look like a miserable wretch. Look upon me and despair, you women. <laughs> Basically, yes. <laughs> oh, that's kind of pathetic. I hope that what I prayed for him as he approached me may happen. And I hope, sires, that what I prayed for you in your absence with hands lifted up to heaven may be granted also. This is not specified. I think we have to imagine he prayed for something very bad to happen. I'm, yeah, that would probably make more sense. Still, he made me laugh heartily, and you may well believe it, for though he is such a pygmy, he was riding a restless horse without a bridle, a very small man on a very big beast. <laughs> okay, okay, you know, who's the guy from Shrek? Lord Farquaad? Yes. <laughs> That's who I'm thinking of. <laughs> oh no. He's probably not even that short. No, I'm sure he's Like not. realistically, he's probably just like a little bit short. You know, it's like it's like a guy who's what, like five foot eleven, but he's like under six foot, so he feels short. I'm not convinced he's short at all. He might just be shorter than Lou Brand. Yeah. Oh, that's so sad. <laughs> My mind pictured to itself one of those dolls which your Slavonians tie onto a foal's back, allowing it then to follow its mother unbridled. Oh my gosh. After this, I was taken back to the five lions. There's a footnote here that says, like, this is a metaphor used in the history that he also wrote. I don't know what it means in this context. Okay. Who were my fellow citizens and housemates in the aforesaid hateful house, and for the next three weeks received no visits, nor held any conversation with anyone but my companions. I pictured to myself that Nicephorus meant never to let me go, and my boundless depression so brought on illness after illness that I should have died, had not the mother of God by her prayers won my life from the Creator and his Son. This was shown to me in a true, not unimagined, vision. <laughs> and that's specified, is it? Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Well, I'm sure as a bishop he is, he is telling the truth in his visionary ecstasy. During these three weeks, Nicephorus was staying outside Constantinople at a place called the Fountains, and thither he bade me come. I was so ill that even sitting and much more standing was a burden, but he compelled me to stand before him with uncovered head, a thing which was very wrong in my weak health. He then said, The envoys of your master King Otto, who were here before you last year, promised me under oath, and the wording of the oath is extant, that they would never in any great way cause scandal in our empire. Do you want a greater scandal than that he should call himself emperor and claim for himself provinces belonging to our empire? That Otto should call himself emperor is what Nikephorus is saying is a scandal. Too many pronouns. Both these things are intolerable, and if both are insupportable, that especially is not to be borne. Nay, not to be heard of, that Otto calls himself emperor. I'm just replacing the pronouns with proper nouns now. Fair enough. If you will confirm their undertaking, our majesty will straight away let you go enriched with a full purse. This he said not because he thought that you would keep such an engagement, even if I were foolish enough to make it, but because he wanted to have in hand something which in the future he might bring forward to his own glory and our discredit. To him I gave this answer. My most holy master, a man of wisdom and full of the spirit of God, foreseeing this demand and fearing lest I might transcend the bounds he set for me, 
gave me written instructions, which he also signed with his own seal, lest I should contravene them. What I relied on in saying this, my august master, is known to you. Let those instructions be produced, and whatever they order I will confirm by oath. But as regards anything that our former envoys promised, swore, or wrote without their master's authority in the words of Plato, the responsibility rests with the chooser. The god is free from blame. Moralizing. Whole mess just basically saying, like, hey, I don't know what the last ambassador said, but I don't think it was approved. I can show you what is approved. I have documents. Right. I can be official. When this topic was finished, we came to the matter of the no most noble princes of Capua and Benevento, whom Nicephorus calls his slaves, and is troubled by an inward pain on their account. Your master, said he, has taken my slaves under his protection. If you will not let them go and restore them to their former servitude, you will forfeit my friendship. They themselves, i.e. Capua and Benevento, demand to be taken into our empire again, but our empire refuses their requests, so that they may learn by experience how dangerous it is for slaves to skulk away from their masters and try to escape from servitude. It would be more seemly for your master to hand them over as a friend than to have to give them up against his will. They shall indeed learn, if life be granted me, what comes of cheating your lord and failing in your duty as a slave. Even now, I think they are feeling what I say. My soldiers across the sea are putting my words into effect. Oh, wow. Yeah, he really wants these two princes back. Yeah, real bad. Like, extradited, yeah. basically, because they, they rebelled against him. To this, he would not allow me to reply. I was anxious to go away, but he ordered me to return to his table. His father sat with him, a man it seemed to me 150 years old. For him, as for his son, the Greeks cry out in hymns of praise, or rather, of blatant folly. May God multiply your years. Because <laughs> he's already so old? Yes. <laughs> he should just go on and die already. Oh Basically. my gosh. This bishop, like this guy. Wow. <laughs> All right. We may infer from this how senseless the Greeks are, how fond of such windy talk, how apt at flattery, and how greedy... Not merely is he an old man, but he has one foot in the grave. And yet they pray for him something that they know for certain nature will not allow. The old tombstone himself- The- Oh! <laughs> the old tombstone is what he's calling the emperor's father. The old tombstone himself rejoices that they are asking on his behalf for what he knows God will not grant. Something that if God did grant it, it would be a curse and not a blessing. Nicephorus, for his part, takes pleasure in being hailed as Prince of Peace and Morning Star. To call a weakling strong, a fool wise, a pygmy a giant, a sinner a saint, is not praise, believe me, but contumely. And he who takes more pleasure in false attributes than in real is exactly like those birds whose sight is blinded by the light of day and illumined by the shades of night. Owls, I guess? I, I suppose so, yeah. But I must return to my subject. At this meal, a thing that he had not done before, he ordered an homily of St. John Chrysostom on the Acts of the Apostles to be read aloud. After the reading was ended, I asked for permission to return to you. But though he nodded affirmatively, he told my persecutor to take me back to my housemates and fellow citizens, the Lions. This was done, and I had no further audience with him until the 20th day of July being kept under close guard, lest I might in conversation chance upon news of his movements. Meanwhile, he ordered Gramizzo, 
Adalbert's envoy to be brought to him. He gave him instructions to return to Italy with an imperial expeditionary force. This consisted of 24 fire ships. I assume this is the kind of ship that carries Greek fire? I suppose so. When was the recipe for Greek fire lost? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, let's see. Uh, They invented it in the 7th century. It is mentioned in the 12th century, but by the 13th, it seems to have been lost over time. Okay. Interesting. So, So it definitely would have still been Greek fire. Yeah. According to Wikipedia, there is one mention of Greek fire being used in the 13th century, from uh, memoirs of someone who was in the Seventh Crusade. And he says that the Muslims were using it against them. Oh, I'd believe that for sure. Yeah, so maybe they forgot how to do it in Europe, but they still remembered how to do it in the Middle East for a while. For Yeah, for a period of time afterwards. Interesting. Yes, 24 fire ships, two filled with Russian troops and two with Galatians. I do not know if he sent any more. I did not see them. The bravery of your soldiers, my masters and august emperors, needs no encouragement from the thought of their enemy's weakness. Although this has often been the case with other nations, the feeblest of whom, lacking comparatively all strength, have frequently routed this Greek courage and made it pay them tribute. Just as it would not frighten you if I were to describe them as valiant heroes cast in the mold of the great Alexander, so I am not going to fire your spirits when I tell you of their weakness, real as it is. I would have you believe me, and you will believe me, I know, when I say that you with 400 of your men would slaughter the whole expedition if there were no ditches or walls in the way. As general of this force, to make a mock of you, I think, he has appointed a man of sorts. I say of sorts, because the fellow has ceased to be a male and has not been able to become a female. I think he's describing a eunuch. Whoa, that totally just threw me for a loop that it would be described in that way. Yeah. Can you read that again? A man of sorts. I say of sorts because the fellow has ceased to be a male and has not been able to become a female. I I mean, I guess, yeah, that would make sense. Yeah, like you can see how he would get to that description. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's fascinating. Does that imply that there there would have been a way to quote unquote become a female? I'm not sure. It is interesting that he's basically recognizing this person as being genderless. Like, he's, yeah. he's using it as an insult, but he's it's, it's an indication that maybe there was, in the medieval period, more complex understandings of gender than we, ex- than we than generally we expect. Think. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Definitely. And it also kind of indicates that this is not like the way Dr. Hughes uh, describes the, the Norse. This is not a single gender society where you're either male or not male. There is some positive quality of being female that you can attain. or that, Right. Yeah. Well, and I was thinking, like, that's very different than, like, a top-bottom situation. Like, in, right. in Spartan communities or in Roman communities, like, a, you could have homosexual relations with another man, but you had to be the top. Right. Yeah, that's the Vikings, too. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, but that that's not what's being described here. Right. It's definitely different that he's referring to, like... An agender individual. Right. And that there are qualities of femininity other than just not being masculine. Yeah. Which is not something that you see in all medieval societies. Yeah, absolutely not. That's fascinating. That's a fascinating description. Yeah, I'd I, I bet on eunuch right there. Yeah. I mean, 
this is still the period of time when a lot of the civil service was made of eunuchs because you can trust eunuchs because they can't take over and become emperor. Right, exactly. They're ineligible because they can't have heirs. Have any heirs, exactly. Although there was at least one instance in the Byzantine Empire where a eunuch did arrange a coup and put his brother on the throne. That would count. Yeah. Good on him. I mean, you're probably better off being an, an accessory to power. Right. Adalbert has sent word to Nicephorus that he has 8,000 men at arms and that with the help of the Greek army they can rout or destroy you. He has also asked your rival to send him some money so that he may urge his men the more eagerly to the fray. So I think this kind of gives us a little more context of why Nicephorus is not being very gracious to Leuprand, is that he and the Holy Roman Empire are actively gearing up for war at this time. Mm -hmm. And Leuprand's mission to create a lasting peace by uniting them through marriage is a good idea. But again, Nicephorus is the worst at diplomacy. Yeah. And so he's just offended <laughs> by the fact that there's anyone here at all asking him to do something else. Right, right. No, your man's made his mind up. He's going to war. Yeah. Now, my masters, learn the wiles of the Greeks and from one crime know them all. And there's a footnote that said, that says that, that is a quote from the Aeneid. <laughs> he knows his stuff. Nicephorus gave the slave to whom he had handed over this higgledy-piggledy hireling host. <laughs> Again with the translation here. I know. Ten I like the ten. alliteration, too. Yeah. A considerable sum of money to be disposed of as follows. If Adalbert should join him, as he had promised, with 7,000 men-at-arms and more, then he was to distribute it as a donative amongst them. Adalbert's brother Kona, with his and the Greek army, was to attack you, but Adalbert was to be kept under close guard at Bari until his brother should return victorious. If, however, Adalbert did not bring with him the 7,000 men that were promised, the instructions were that he should be seized, bound, and handed over to you on your arrival. Moreover, that the money originally destined to him should be paid into your hands. What a warrior! What loyalty he wishes to betray the man for whom he prepares a defender. He prepares a defender for him whom he wishes to destroy. He is loyal to neither, disloyal to both. He does what he did not need to do. He needed to do what he has not done. But so be it. He has acted as becomes a Greek. I must return <laughs> to my subject. It always gets me when they turn these insults into ethnically motivated insults, I suppose. Yeah, it's very strange. It's very, it's very, very jarring. Yeah, I suppose because for us, it's so countercultural to what we consider acceptable. Yeah. You know, but these guys are like, oh, the Swedes, oh, the Greeks, you know, or, you know, whoever is, quote unquote, the uncouth in that particular culture. I remember reading Dumas in high school. I was very taken aback when he would like say stuff like, oh, yes, Spaniards are hot-blooded and mm, uh, mm. inclined to vengeance. And I'm like, what, all of them? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Oh, well, see, but it, co it comes back to the, those ideas of, of like the humors or whether an ingredient is a hot ingredient or a, or a wet ingredient or a dry ingredient or whether a particular season is wet or dry. Like summer is, is hot and dry. Winter is dry but cold. And then autumn is wet and cold and spring is wet and yeah, wet and warm. So like, like how do you how do you describe these things? And the same thing can be applied to races and ethnicities and groups of people. 
Yeah, and they get really granular with it, which is also weird to us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so that's jarring. And it is kind of an interesting thing that he, that Nikephorus, with his diplomatic expertise, is basically saying, Adelbert has promised to come with this many people. If he does, we give him the money. If he shows up and he doesn't have that many people, we put him in chains, hand him over to my enemy, and give my enemy the money to do what he wants with Adelbert. Oh my gosh, that's so brutal. This is why Liu Brand is like, this is a terrible thing he's doing. I'm going to use it as an example of how terrible these that's people are. Oh, wow. On the 19th of July, he sent off his motley fleet, I viewing the spectacle from my detestable abode. The next morning... That being the day on which these flippant Greeks celebrate the ascension of the prophet Elijah with stage plays, he ordered me again to attend upon him, and said, Our imperial majesty is thinking of leading an army against the Assyrians, not, as your master does, against followers of Christ. Oh, wow. Last year I meant to do so, but hearing that your master intended to invade the territory of our empire, we let the Assyrians go and wheeled round sharp upon him. His envoy, the Venetian Dominic, met us in Macedonia, and with much labor and exertion, tricked us into returning, since he affirmed with an oath that your master would never think of such a thing, much less do it. Return, therefore, now. When I heard that, there's like, close quote, M dash, and now Liufrand is speaking. Okay. When I heard that, I said, thank God to myself, because he gets to go home. And give this and this message to your master. If he satisfies my requirements, you may come back. To him I gave this reply. Were your most sacred majesty to bid me to fly to Italy, my master assuredly will fulfill all your majesty's wishes, and I should return rejoicing to you. With what purpose I said this did not, alas, escape him. He nodded <laughs> his head with a smile. He's like, I really want to go home. I really want to go home. And as I was bowing to the earth in homage and preparing to take my leave, bade me wait outside and have dinner with him. A dinner which smelt strongly of garlic and onions and was filthy with oil and fish sauce. Okay, but I thought he liked the previous dinner with the leeks and the garlic and the fish sauce. <laughs> Make up your mind. On this day, by urgent prayers, I induced him graciously to accept a present from me, a thing which before he had frequently refused to do. While we were sitting at table, a table which had length without breadth, and was covered over for a rod's breadth, but was practically bare down its length. He made merry over the Franks, including the Germans as well as the Latins under that name, and asked me to tell him where the chief city of my bishopric was situated, and in what name it rejoiced. It is called Cremona, I replied, and it is quite close to Po, the king of all Italian rivers. As your majesty is preparing in haste to send your war galleys to that country, let me reap some advantage from having already made your acquaintance. Grant Cremona the blessings of peace, and of your grace allow it existence. Seeing that resistance to you is impossible, the cunning rogue saw that I was speaking ironically, and lowering his eyes, promised he would do what I asked. He swore furthermore by the virtue of his sacred majesty that no harm should come to me, and that his galleys would convey me speedily and safely to the harbor of Ancona. On this he took his oath, striking his breast with his fingers. But mark how foul was his perjury. <laughs> his conversation took place on Monday, the 20th of July, and for the next nine days I received no supplies from him at all. This, too, was at a time when the famine at Constantinople was so severe 
that three gold pieces were insufficient to provide one meal for my twenty-five attendants and our four Greek guards. On the fourth day of that week, Nicephorus left Constantinople to march against the Assyrians. The famine in Constantinople was actually a problem at the time. It's because of Nicephorus' mismanagement. Aha! Money into the military and not to the people. Yes, exactly. Nothing for, like, the social good of the actual citizenry. It's all military. No wonder he was ousted so quick. It would be crazy if a country did that now. Like, can you imagine? No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't even go on with that. Um, there is actually a pretty entertaining story that came from this. It said that d- during the famine, an old man came up to Nicephorus and told him that he wanted to join the army. And Nicephorus is like, you're too old. And the old man replies, yes, but I'm much stronger than I was in my youth. Nicephorus says, what makes you think that? And the man says, it used to be that I required two donkeys to carry home a few gold pieces worth of grain. But now I can carry a few gold pieces worth of grain home on my back. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. That's a beautiful moral. Yeah, it's, it's oh, pretty solid. It is. That's, that's good. That's good. That's like groceries nowadays or college and tuition. Right. Oh, yeah, exactly. It's like, it's amazing. Yeah, they were basically having a magnified version of the kind of problem we're having now, where the price of, like, necessary goods is increasing far beyond the actual money that we have available to yeah. us. Yeah, bingo. On the fifth day, his brother summoned me and addressed me thus. His sacred majesty has gone forth, and at his orders I have remained at home today. Tell me then now if you desire to see his sacred majesty, or if you have anything to say which you have not as yet brought forward. To that I say, I have no reason for asking an interview with the Sacred Majesty, nor have I anything fresh to say. My one request is that, in accordance with his Sacred Majesty's promise, I be conveyed on his war galleys to the harbor of Ancona. On hearing this, the Greeks are always ready to swear by the head of another. He began to swear that he would carry out the promise by the head of the Emperor, by his own life and by his children, May God's protection for them be suited to the truth of his words. I asked him, when? And he replied, as soon as the emperor has gone, the admiral of the fleet, who has sole control in naval matters, will see to your business directly after his majesty's departure. Deceived by this hope, I went away from him rejoicing. Two days later, however, on the Saturday, Nacephorus bade me attend him at Umbria, a place 18 miles distant from Constantinople. (laughs) Now I gotta go over here. He there addressed me thus. I thought that you, as a man of rank and honor, had come here to fulfill my wishes and establish a perpetual friendship between me and your master. Since by reason of the hardness of your heart, you are unwilling to do this, at least bring about this one thing which you can do with perfect justice. Promise me that your master will give no help to the princes of Capua and Benevento my slaves whom I am arranging to attack. So these are those two guys again. Yeah. <laughs> he really wants them. What, what did they do? I mean, from context, what I'm getting is that, like, they used to be his vassals. And, and then they defected. Now now they're Otto's vassals. Right. And he's like, I want them back. They're mine. I want their land back, at least. Or I want them in jail. Or, like, right. I want Well, he revenge. he wants to be the one to decide what fate yes. you know, they they have to endure. As he offers me nothing that is his, let him at least give up what is mine. It is a known fact that their fathers and their grandfathers paid tribute to our empire. 
and my imperial forces will see to it that they themselves do the same. To that I answered, These princes are men of high nobility, and my master's vassals. If he sees an army of yours attacking them, he will send them such a force as will annihilate your expedition, and take the two overseas provinces from you. Then, swelling like a toad with anger, he cried, Go away. By my life, and by my parents, who begat me to be the man I am, I will soon give your master other things to think about than protecting rebellious slaves. <laughs> that's, a, that's quite a threat. I was just leaving him when he bade me sit down to dinner with the interpreter, and summoning the brother of the two princes and Byzantius of Bari, ordered them to vomit gross insults against yourselves and against the Latin and German nations. On my departure, however, from the disgusting meal, they sent messengers to me secretly, and swore that their yelpings were not voluntary, but due to the Emperor's wishes and threats. Nykephrys himself at the same dinner asked me if you had parks, and if in your parks you had wild asses and other animals. When I told him you had parks and animals in the parks, but no wild asses, he said, I will take you into our park, and you will be surprised, both at its size and at the wild asses it contains. <laughs> why, are, why are they having a measuring contest over their asses? I don't know. <laughs> Like, of all the things to be excited about showing off. I mean, especially since the Emperor has, you know, a rather small ass. <laughs> that I suppose establishing the fact that they have wild asses is quite impressive. Yes. Royal compensation issues. I was accordingly taken to a park, which was fairly large and hilly and full of bushes, but not at all picturesque. <laughs> it's a nature preserve, don't judge it. I was riding along with my hat on when the marshal of the palace saw me and sent his son in haste to say that it was not permitted for anyone to wear a hat in the emperor's presence, and that I must put on a bonnet. <laughs> I answered, women with us wear bonnets and hoods when they are out riding, men wear hats. You have no right to compel me to change the custom of my country here, seeing that we allow your envoys when they come to us to keep to their ways. They wear long sleeves, bands, brooches, flowing hair, and tunics down to their heels, both when they ride or walk and sit at table with us. And what to all of us seems quite too shameful, they alone kiss our emperors with covered heads. And then I said to myself, may God forbid it in the future. Well, said he, you must go back. <laughs> He's like, I'm still not going to allow it. I love these little cutaways of his internal monologue here. It's, beaut it's beautiful. I'm going to advise that we not let them wear their clothes since they're making us abide by their headgear customs. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And the marshal's like, okay, you, you know what, you're done. Go home. As I was doing so, i.e. going back, I met their so-called wild asses in a herd with some roe deer. But why, I ask, wild asses? Our tame ones at Cremona are just like them. Their color and shape are the same. Both have long ears. Both are equally melodious when they begin to bray. They are alike in size and in swiftness. And wolves find each kind equally delicious. When I saw them, I said to the Greek who was riding with me, I never saw the like in Saxony. Ah, he replied, if your master be complacent to his sacred majesty, he will give him many such. And it will be no small glory for him to possess something that none of his illustrious predecessors have ever seen. But believe me, my august masters, my brother and fellow Bishop Antony can supply beasts quite as good as these. Witness the market at Cremona. And his walk the street, not as wild asses, but as tame ones. And instead of roaming idle, they carry loads upon their backs. However, when my companion told Nykephrys what I had said, he sent me two wild goats. 
and gave me permission to go. On the following day, he himself set out for Syria. Pray now, mark why he led his army against the Assyrians. The Greeks and Saracens have certain writings which they call the Visions of Daniel. I should call them Sibylline books. The Sibylline books were like a book of prophecy from pagan Rome. Mm-hmm. He's draw- Early. That's he's drawing the... Early yeah. Rome. In them is found written how many years each emperor shall live, what crisis will occur during his reign, whether he shall have peace or war, and whether fortune will smile upon the Saracens or not. According to these prophecies, the Assyrians in the time of the present emperor Nicephorus will not be able to resist the Greeks, but Nicephorus himself will only live for seven years. Okay, question. How late was this written after the fact? No way to know. So this is kind of close to the money. Yeah, it is legitimately unclear as far as I know when exactly this was written. And of course, it could have, the guess could have been added at some point in the copying right, process. Right, right, of course, that's true. That's true. Huh, okay, fun detail to throw in there. After his death, an emperor will rise worse than he, only I fear that none such can be found, and more unwarlike, in whose time the Assyrians shall so prevail that they will bring under their rule all the country as far as Chalcedon, which is not far from Constantinople. Both peoples pay serious heed to these dates, and so now, for one and the same reason, the Greeks are pressing vigorously forward, and the Saracens in despair offer no resistance. Awaiting the time, then, they will attack, and the Greeks, in turn, not resist." So he's basically describing, like, there's a prophecy that says the Saracens are going to be losing now, winning later. And that's going to happen because both sides know about this prophecy and believe it. Okay. And so the Saracens aren't putting up any effort now. They're just waiting till later when the Greeks will not put up any effort because they know they're going to lose. Self-fulfilling. I like it. Efficient. A certain Sicilian bishop named Hippolytus, or Hippolytus possibly, wrote similarly concerning your empire and our people, I call our people all those who are under your rule, and I pray that what he wrote about these present times may turn out true. His other prophecies, as I have heard from those who know his books, have all been fulfilled. One of his many sayings may be here mentioned. He says that in these days the writing shall be fulfilled, the lion and his whelp shall together exterminate the wild ass. The Greeks interpret this as follows. Leo, that is, the emperor of the Romans or the Greeks, which indicates this may be written later because Leo is the emperor's brother right now. Ah, mm-hmm. And his whelp, the king, namely of the Franks, shall together in these days drive out the wild ass, that is, the African king of the Saracens. But their interpretation does not seem to me to be true. The lion and his whelp differ in size, but are of one nature, species, and kind. And to the best of my knowledge, it seems irrational to make the lion the emperor of the Greeks and his whelp the king of the Franks. Both these rulers are men, as the lion and his whelp are both animals, but they differ from one another in character as much, I will not say as one species differs from another, but as rational beings differ from those devoid of reason. The whelp differs from the lion only in age. The form is the same, the fury is the same, the roar the same. The king of the Greeks has long hair and wears a tunic with long sleeves and a bonnet. He is lying, crafty, merciless, foxy, proud, falsely humble, miserly, and greedy. He eats garlic, onions, and leeks, and he drinks <laughs> bath water. Again, with the garlics, onions, and leeks, which are the same plant family. Yeah. In some leech book remedies, they'll use the word for onion or garlic, and it, it means the same thing. So we don't actually know whether it's referring to an onion or a garlic or whatever. So I'm I'm kind of curious to know what, what the original would have said here. But I mean, I'm sure they were differentiated. 
Yes. But the fact that it's all in the same family, he just doesn't like onions, garlics, and leeks. He's so hung Which up is on weird, this. Because those are those are delicious things. Yeah. Like I'm not a huge fan of garlic, but I love onions and I really, really enjoy leeks, so like, come on. The King of the Franks, on the other hand, is beautifully shorn and wears a garment quite different from a woman's dress and a hat. He is truthful, guileless, merciful when right, severe when necessary, always truly humble, never miserly. He does not live on garlic, onions, and leeks. <laughs> a notable distinction. Nor does he spare animals' lives so as to heap up money by selling instead of eating them. You have heard the difference. Do not accept the Greek interpretation. It either refers to the future or it is not true. It is impossible that Nikephorus, as they falsely say, should be the lion and Otto the whelp, and that they together should exterminate anyone. Sooner shall the Parthians and Germans traverse one another's land, and in exile drink the one from Arar and the other from the Tigris, that's Virgil again, than that Nikephorus and Otto should join in friendship and confirm a treaty of union. You have heard the Greek interpretation, now hear that of Leo Brand, Bishop of Cremona. I say, and not merely do I say, but I affirm, that if the writing is to be fulfilled in these days, the lion and his whelp are the father and the son, Otto and Otto, unlike in nothing, only differing in age. And they shall together at this time exterminate the wild ass Nikephorus, who not unsuitably is compared to a wild ass by reason of his vain and empty boastings and his incestuous marriage with his mistress and fellow godparent. We wouldn't call it incest these days, but there was a huge scandal because there were rumors that Nikephorus was actually the godfather of Theophano, the empress he was supposed to marry. So there's no oh. blood relation, but in the eyes of God, they were well, and that's that's a big deal. Like the one of the reasons that you would always make your godparent of your kid be the same gender is for that very reason. Is that you wouldn't have a relationship where someone's godparent it could it could devolve into a romance and you can't have that because it's spiritual incest i didn't know that was a rule yeah yeah that's one of those things that i learned in ireland because they adhered to that in in the catholic church here anyway so that's why he's accusing him of having an, an incestuous marriage this was a scandal that went around it never came to anything it's not even clear whether there was a, an actual godparent relationship there or not oh interesting it could have just been something that was made up mm. If this wild ass be not exterminated by our lion and his whelp, namely by Otto and Otto, father and son, the august emperors of the Romans, then that which Hippolytus wrote will not be true. The Greek interpretation mentioned above must be entirely discarded. O blessed Jesus, eternal God, word of the Father, who dost speak to us, unworthy as we are, not by voice but by inspiration, mayest thou decree no other interpretation of this sentence than mine, Command that our lion and his whelp exterminate and humble this wild ass in his mortal life, so that at the day of the Lord his soul might be saved, returning to its proper place and making submission to his masters, the emperors Basil and Constantine. I am going to check how much longer this is. <laughs> I was going to say, we're, we're really going here. The whole thing's 40 pages. We have done 25 pages out of 40. Okay, okay. So I think maybe we should... Pause. Pause and come back to this... <laughs> Maybe next time. Sounds good. That, no, that's that's perfect. Should we save our ratings or should we go ahead and do some? Do a part one and part two? Let's save the ratings because we've already got like two hours of material. True. And we have gone through slightly more than half. So we'll have extra time next time. That's true. That is very true. Ooh, I'm excited. I think my... Okay, I just want to say that like my favorite best quote so far is still the description of the emperor in the first place. 
It's the greatest thing. That is one of the things that's best known from this text. It's because it's... It's, it's so absurd. It's one of the only surviving descriptions of Nicephorus, and it's ridiculous. Oh, instant NPC right there. Instant. Yes. Oh, amazing. <laughs> amazing. <laughs> Incidentally, if you Google Nicephorus, you will find a... I want to say like a more of a late to mid-medieval depiction of him, like after his time. Ooh, where okay. He, looks like a completely normal guy in a fancy robe with a sword. I mean, of course. So, which may or may not be actually based on what he look like. other things that haven't survived. Right. That's amazing. I love it. The sheer ridiculousness of this entire thing. What a drama so queen. Fun. What a drama queen. <laughs> Honestly, he would make a fantastic NPC as well. That's true. Because you, you could just... Because <laughs> it does say he goes to an inn at some point. Like, he's... He's put up in an inn. So mm. your players can come in and see this dramatic priest sitting there complaining about his time being, you know, in this horrible kingdom with these horrible customs and this horrible food. That would be really fun. It would also be interesting to use this kind of situation. Honestly, it could be a, a whole multi-session adventure. Yeah. War is about to break out between... Your king and this king, you have to go there and convince him to make a marriage for a lasting peace. Mm -hmm. But the other king is an asshole. A complete you have to deal with that. Oh my gosh. A wild ass. He's an ass with no ass, shall we say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. All right. Well, we'll we'll pause that one there and we'll pick that one back up. Thank you for listening to The Miniculum. Please consider leaving a rating and review in Apple Podcast to help support the project. For more geeky additions or to see our sources and notes, check out our blog, Marginalia, at themaniculumpodcast.com. You can also join our Facebook group, The Maniculum Podcast, to join in on discussions about all things medieval. And feel free to reach out. We're on Twitter, at Maniculum, and on Instagram, at Maniculum Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. And special thanks to Sandra Boyle, who created the music for our show. You can check out her project, Sugar Glass, on Spotify. I found how to make a martini out of Swedish fish. Oh, come on. Oh, see, now I'm just getting all those, like, Pinterest college girl ones that are like, fish bowl punch. It's like, no, no, I'm looking for a fish liquor made out of actual fish.